You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Well, hello, everyone. This is Brent Johnson from Santiago Capital, and uh, I'm back here on Real Vision, and I just have a real privilege today. Uh, I have the opportunity to, to speak with somebody who I've followed for a very long time, and I've communicated with him a few times uh, over the years over email, but I've never actually spoken to him before. And uh, I just can't tell you how excited I am and how much I've been looking forward to it. Um, and so with that, I'd, I'd like to welcome Russell Napier to Real Vision. Welcome, Russell. Thanks, Brent. You know, one of the reasons that this is kind of such a treat for me is I have to say, you know, I read a lot of research. I follow a lot of different people, listen to their interviews. Uh, but out of everybody that I kind of follow on a consistent basis, uh, you're probably my favorite. So I'm a fan. I just got to tell you that right up front so that there's no uh, no hiding it. Um, and I think one of the reasons I, I, uh, I find you interesting and like your stuff is I'm not really sure what to call you. You know, you're a strategist, you're an analyst, you're a portfolio manager, you're an author, you're an entrepreneur, like, and you're a Scotsman. So what, what, what's the right thing? What's the right way, right way to refer to you? Uh, well, that's good. So the first thing you mustn't do is call me a Scotsman because you'll get all the Scotsmen really upset. So I come from near Belfast in Northern Ireland, but I have ah, lived, I have lived okay. in Scotland for nearly 30 years. So, so it may be wearing off, but I've got friends who are Scottish who get really upset when people call me a Scotsman. I don't find it offensive, but they do. So uh, oh, okay. anything, anything except a Scotsman is really what you should call me, Brent. It's up to you. Got it. Got it. Well, you know, one of the other reasons that I, I like reading your stuff is it's not just that, uh, you know, you're smart and intelligent and all that stuff. But, but in my opinion, you're a very, very good storyteller. And someone who's a very good storyteller in finance, I particularly like because to me, when you just read a bunch of data or a bunch of numbers, sometimes it's hard to internalize it. But the way you kind of, uh, you know, write your stuff, it, it, it helps me remember it better. So maybe that's one of the reasons I like it. But, you know, in all of your stuff, you know, you throw in a little historical anecdote, a little humor, uh, but then you always have the data to back it up. So, you know, um, I, I think it's fantastic. Did you study history at some point? Is that how you, you know, kind of came to that kind of style of writing? Well, my friends might say, of course, I'm from Northern Ireland, I've lived history. So uh, that's one way of getting to know a bit of history. But but I, I just want to pause on that word storytelling, because I think it's a great phrase. And it's a phrase that in our business, people kind of look down on when you say you're a storyteller, you know, because it's like it's a marketing thing. But stories are really, really important because they add so much more than than the data. And I think it's a skill that is really underrepresented in our, our business and looked down on. But, you know, the, the problem for everybody in our business, particularly in the modern era, is yes, it's finance, yes, it's accountancy, yes, it's economics, but it's also sociology. I mean, you've just lived through a remarkable election in America, which is as much about sociology as anything. It's about politics. And if you want to put all that stuff together, you can't do it in an equation. And a story may be the better way to do it. Now, the stories can be wrong. The stories can be inaccurate. But to pretend it isn't a story, to pretend the future, which is, I can't say it's unknowable or I'd be doing myself out of a job, uh, but we we better tell the future in stories because the more we tell it in equations, the more dangerous it is definitely going to be. So I think, uh, you know, stories are very, very important. And it is important for all of us when we try to work out investment that we are cognizant of the very many forces beyond 
if you like, just just uh, economics that drive and determine prices. So I, I am flattered and delighted that you think I'm a good storyteller. Uh, and I don't see it as an insult. I see it as a great compliment that we need, to, uh, we need to think more like this. Well, I meant it as a compliment, and I've tried to kind of follow your lead in that a little bit. And I, I don't think I'm in the same league as you, but I, I've definitely used your writing as kind of a model for my own. Um, so, you know, because I've read your stuff for, for a long time, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm fairly familiar with your views. Uh, I'm still going to ask you a number of questions that I already know the answers to because I want the, the, the audience here to get to, to hear it straight from the horse's mouth. And I agree with some of the stuff that you're talking about. And then I also know that I currently disagree with some of the stuff I've, I've read recently. But it may just be because I don't fully understand your position. So I'm looking forward to kind of digging into that a little bit more detail. You know, I hope we have time to get through it all. I know, you, you know, you're, you're a busy man and don't have, uh, you know, tons of time. But uh, I, I hope uh, that, 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 that we get to talk about this stuff. And I hope the, uh, the, the listeners uh, get some value out of it. Because I think what you're talking about right now is really kind of the zeitgeist of the moment. And that's kind of the whole inflation versus deflation debate. And, you know, I think one of the important things that I think one of the important things of you starting to talk about an inflation is that you were so uh, so much of a deflationist for a long time. Um, and so before we get into the current topic, I'd actually, if you don't mind, I'd like to kind of you know rewind five or 10 years and just kind of talk about, you know, the deflationary environment that 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 you correctly called you know, for the last 10 years when everybody else was saying green shoots, inflation, you know, get ready for, you know, hyperinflation, failures of currencies. And you kind of really stuck to your guns. And so uh, I guess I'd kind of, you know, what was it that, you know, 10, 5, 10 years ago that, 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 that kept you as a deflationist? Why didn't QE work? Why didn't negative rates work? Why didn't the five arrows from Japan work? Yeah. So I remember the day I changed my mind on this, uh, you know, and I was attending a conference in New York, actually in the plaza, where I had the delight to try try to interview Paul Volcker. He's very good at not answering questions, but uh, uh, we were surrounded by commercial bankers. And I began to realize just the challenge that commercial bankers were going to have in growing their balance sheets, regardless of the policy of the Federal Reserve. Now, the most important thing for anybody watching this to know is that it's commercial banks who create money and not the central, uh, not the central bank. The central bank uh, and I think this is a really helpful analysis, is like a coachman or a coachwoman driving a, a team of horses. But the six horses in front are commercial banks. And the reins they have that run from the coachman to the uh, horses are the reins of interest rate, the reins of, of central bank balance sheet size, and sometimes they also control uh, capital adequacy rules. And those are the reins. And by steering, they use those to steer the horses to create money. And what I thought was right is that it wasn't going to work, that they simply weren't going to work. There were all sorts of reasons why commercial bank balance sheets weren't going to expand. And ultimately, if they didn't expand, no matter what the central bank did with its own balance sheet, which we all know has been going like this, in terms of broad money, which is the money that we have in our pockets that we spend every day, it really wasn't going to go up. And that was one reason for being on the side of deflation. But there was another reason, and that is that the interest rate policy that they pursued in, in, in following quantitative easing was creating a huge boom in non-bank debt. And the debt to GDP ratio was going up. Now that varies from country to country, but it basically it was going up. So they'd actually devised a policy that was guaranteed to do the reverse of what they wanted it to do. It was not creating any growth in broad money, but it was creating growth in debt. And I think as everybody watching this would probably know, if your debt keeps going up and your nominal GDP doesn't go up, you're weakening your balance sheet. You're not strengthening a balance sheet, preparing it for when the next recession comes to be more robust you're preparing it to be less robust. 
So those were the kind of crucial reasons for saying that this isn't going to work. It's because the commercial banks weren't doing that. Now, things have changed, which is, I think, what we're going to come on to. Uh, but it was, I mean, America was more successful in this than elsewhere, but was largely unsuccessful. Some places, such as the European Union, were completely unsuccessful in this. And uh, that's why they've, they've got themselves into an even bigger mess uh, than the, uh, the United States of America. Also, along those lines, um, you know, the goal of QE is to pull interest rates lower. Uh, and, and, you know, we have had, you know, low or very low and, in, you know, in Europe and Japan, negative rates for, for many years. Uh, in your opinion, are low rates inflationary or are they deflationary? Because I, I, in my opinion, that's something people get wrong sometimes. Yeah, I, 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 so I, I've kind of exp- uh, explained the situation in which they can actually be deflationary. And the way you could have low interest rates being deflationary is they don't create any more money, but they create a lot more debt. Yeah. So monetary policy is about the quantity of money, full stop, not the price of money. The price of money is a technique to adjust the quantity of money. And what they managed to pull off was a price of money which, which adjusted the quantity of debt without adjusting the quantity of money. And that's deflationary. It's, it's not inflationary. Uh, you might say, well, why did they not change that policy? Uh, and I guess that's kind of uh, folklore, isn't it? Don't to a man with a hammer, every problem is a nail. And they had a hammer, so they saw this problem as uh, you know as being a nail, and they come up and they hit it with a hammer. Well, is it also a function of the design of the monetary system, and then the laws that that the central banks have to operate under? Because if 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 for the system to work, money has to grow. You know, there has to be ever extension of credit. If credit is not extended by design, the system will fall. But central banks are only allowed to lend, right? They're not allowed to print, at least not yet. Um, And so, you know, the the fact that you've got these low rates that are caused by too much debt, and the only way that they can fix it is adding to the debt, it's kind of this deflationary spiral. And I think you are one of the people that kind of helped me understand that. So, again, I'll say thank you. But um, the interesting thing now, and I guess what's probably time to kind of shift gears here a little bit, is, uh, you know, is two or three months ago now. Well, actually, you started hinting at it in the spring. And then two or three months ago, you actually said inflation, get ready for it. And, you know, I wasn't totally surprised because you had started hinting about it. But I was a little surprised at the speed with which um, you said it. Were you surprised by the speed with which you said it? Uh, so the first thing I'd say is I think there was a better solution than quantitative easing. And this will sound very technical, but it was the reintermediation of credit assets. And what could be more boring than the reintermediation of credit assets? But if we'd done something that persuaded the banks to buy back in existing credit, then their balance sheets would have expanded and they would have created money. You know, And by existing credit, that's obviously government debt. But there's a hell of a lot of private sector debt out there, whether it's MBS or corporate bonds. So that's the policy I would have pursued rather than quantitative easing. Uh, and I think, you know, if you buy existing credit assets, at least directly, you do not increase the le- level of debt, but you do increase the level of money. So that's rather technical. But I think there were there were tools in the toolbox of the central bank other than quantitative easing. Did, they didn't use them. They got it wrong. We are where we are. Uh, am I surprised how quickly I changed my mind? Uh, that's kind of the, the thing about what I do is that I don't change my mind very often. But when you're going to change it, you better do it quickly. Uh, and I remember very well back to that particular bank conference because I'd been there the week before, saying one thing, and I was back the next week saying exactly the reverse. And, you know, people think, oh, you're very inconsistent. This is a terrible way to do something. But if you only do it every 10 years, it's not quite so bad. Uh, So the reason that I changed my mind, and I would say two months too late, is that I finally began to grasp the scale and magnitude of the government guarantee 
programs for commercial bank debt. And I wish I'd done it two months earlier, and, and I wish I'd seen it two months earlier. Uh, but also you have to make that call, not just that it is happening and nobody can refute that it's happening. You have to foresee that it will continue to happen. And I think as time has gone on, I just get more and more convinced that this particular manipulation of the commercial banking system by government, which means they now control monetary policy, is permanent and not temporary. So I wasn't really that surprised how quickly I changed my mind. I just wish I'd been smart enough to change it two months earlier and really see the significance of those first step. You know, that first step across the Rubicon, well, you can always jump back again. But it, as it took a while to realize that this was the new, this was a revolution. This wasn't just a step. This was a revolution. So I could still be wrong on that. But I think what we're going to discuss is really why this is a, a monetary revolution. Sure, sure. And just just for, for the listeners who are at home who are kind of new to finance and they're still kind of learning, the, the point we're trying to make here is that you know, QE for the last 10 years, it expanded central bank balance sheets and, and, it, and it gave a lot of reserves to the banks themselves, but the banks did not use those reserves as collateral to then loan into the market. So lending, broad lending didn't take place. And typically that's where most of the money supply comes from, is from money being lent by commercial banks. That didn't happen. So we had this deflationary environment where debt was growing, but money was not. Just to interrupt, Brent, because I think it's very easy for anybody watching to confuse the two things. There are two different types of debt, and it's really important to divide them into two. Yeah. There's commercial bank debt, and there's everything else. And we know that as bond debt, commercial paper, corporate bonds, yeah. et cetera. So what happened is the banks didn't lend, so they didn't create money because that's what banks do. But meanwhile, this other great big pile of debt grew and grew and grew. So that's the kind of catch-22 we're discussing here. You can't create more money unless you create more debt, but specifically bank debt. The problem is they created the wrong sort of debt. They didn't create the sort of debt that also creates money. So to solve the problem, maybe what you do in a society that, let's say, was 50% bank debt and 50% non-bank debt, well, if you got the bank debt growing at 10%, then the money supply might grow at 10%. And if you stopped the non-bank debt growing at all, then you would growth in money of 10%, but growth in debt of total debt of 5%. So it's a bizarre, and it's really difficult yeah. to grasp, it's a bizarre combination of how more debt can reduce your debt to GDP level. It doesn't reduce your debt level, but it reduces your debt to GDP level. But the crucial bit is which bit is growing and which bit isn't growing. Exactly. And so, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you're, you're kind of one of the ones that helped me kind of understand that years ago. Um, and so, you know, I, I have been in the overall deflationary case, and, and I still am on a global basis. You know, I, I think we're going to talk about where, which comes first or where inflation comes first here in a minute. Um, but, you know, I, I've remained in the deflationary camp, but I, I will say that what we're going to start talking about here is you've made the case to me better than anybody else of why I should start thinking the other way. Um, so that's kind of why I think what, what we're going to talk about next is so important, because what you're saying now, and I'm, I'm going to let you explain it, is that there has been a change. There is actually going to be bank lending, and that is going to put uh, push GDP higher uh, or potentially push GDP higher. More money will be available. And so that the, the crushing of the debt isn't there. So, again, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but why don't you explain, you know, for the listeners, this Rubicon that has been crossed and, and why the banks are going to start lending? OK, so let's say nothing I'm about to say now is a forecast. This is all in the past. Everything I'm about to talk about has already been done. It's not a forecast. So what began to happen in the, in the spring of this year is that governments really across the world and almost without exception, like they were acting in unison, suddenly decided that the best thing to do to keep the, the people and businesses alive during COVID-19 
was to get credit flowing through the banking system to people who needed it, which if you think about it, it's really pretty smart because everybody's got a bank account. So if you needed to get money down into the very corners, you know, to the guy who runs a taco stand, for instance, that's how you, that's how you would do it. Uh, and you do it, did it through the existing financial system. And in America, you did it through your uh, small business administration, but also through the banking system. So what we have to grasp is how that changed uh, everything. Now, the reason, uh, so let's talk about the United Kingdom, because I know the numbers better. We have made 30 billion sterling, uh, sorry, 40 billion sterling in a thing called a coronavirus bounce back loan. Well, our banking system has been one of those banking systems that really was unable to lend, couldn't find anybody to lend to. So how did they suddenly find 40 billion good commercial credits to lend to? Well, they're not commercial credits. The government has guaranteed the principal on those loans. So suddenly banks whose balance sheets have been going like this for years suddenly went like this. But the only reason they could do that is because the government guaranteed the credit risk. So when they've done that, they've created money. So I think the stunning statistic for anybody who's thinking about inflation is the end result of all of this on a global basis. And the end result is this. We have a figure. It's called the OECD total money supply growth number. Uh, and it begins in first quarter of 1981. It is currently at 17.4%. Since 1981, there has only been four readings above 17.4%. So we talked about the inability of banks to lend, the inability to create money. And suddenly in the deepest recession since World War II, we've got basically almost the fastest growth in money since 1981. Now, I think what we need to discuss in terms of inflation, which we'll come on to, is does there necessarily have to be a link between that scale of growth in money and inflation? But the transformational thing that is already behind us is we've gone from broad money growth, I think, from memory, of about 6 or 7%. To, to, to 17.5% globally in six months. Does it matter? Does it not matter? And then I guess the following thing is, do they keep it up? Do they keep up these yeah. policies in the banking system or do they stop and retreat? You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. This is one of the first real questions I have for you, uh, where I'm just going to push back a little bit on the, I think you've said, if they continue doing this, it will be inflationary. If they do it once just because of the pandemic and don't follow through, then we're probably going to, then maybe it doesn't happen yet. Um, you know, when you, you've talked about uh, bank credit is, you know, up over, you know, from last year and it's expanding. It, it is true. And it's expanded. Uh, what is it? Four or five hundred billion dollars. Um, but it's if you look at the report, a lot of it, you know, it happened in May and June. And then in July, October, August and September, it started to contract because those loans have have started to those programs have started to wind down. And, you know, the other part of the, 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 the bank credit is the is the, all the bonds and securities that the, the that the banks have bought. So they're kind of filling that gap. Um, so so I guess the question I have to you is how often do you think they need to do these these programs or these loans in order for it to have a lasting effect? So, you know, we've had for years we've had these green shoots. These programs get rolled out. We get the green shoots. Inflation expectations jump and then we roll over. And I, I guess I would say over the last four months, that's what I'm seeing again. We had the green shoots, credit impulse is starting to roll over. I think what you're saying, and again, I don't, I don't want to speak for you, but I think what you're saying is these are going to happen more and more often. 
Do I have that right? Yeah. So, I mean, we could spend a long time dividing up U.S. bank credit because it's been absolutely fascinating this year, and nobody nobody would be vaguely interested in it. But total bank credit, as of last Friday, was at a new all-time high. But if I draw that in the air, it kind of goes up and it kind of plateaus. So that's the point. It's not as if in aggregate it's it's coming down. Some bits are coming down and some bits are going up. There is something, of course, already on the launch pad that both Republicans and Democrats have passed, which is called the Main Street Lending Program, which is a $600 billion lending program, which is stillborn, really isn't doing anything. So I think the first thing I'd point out is they'll keep tweaking that until it does something. And $600 billion, uh, well, even in America, is still quite a lot of money. So I think there's another $600 billion to come uh, from that program. So the, the programs so far have been effectively life support. That's what yeah. they is to try to keep businesses alive. Now, the, ne- the next programs will be recovery programs. And then I think after that, we'll get to green lending programs and perhaps social justice programs. Now, rather than me just throw those out there, let me give you an example of one that's already been launched. So the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom has announced uh, with very few details that we will have a 25-year mortgage uh, available. It will be on a fixed interest rate. It will be on 95% loan to value. Now, Americans are very used to the long-term fixed mortgage rates. We are not. Uh, Our commercial market does not provide such a product because it's not commercial. But the prime minister has done this. Now, this is not the government lending money. It's exactly the same as the programs we've been discussing. This is forcing the banks to lend the money. The government backs it. Uh, This has nothing to do with keeping businesses alive during coronavirus. It's nothing to do with an economic recovery, really, either. It's nothing to do with green lending. Uh, But if you listen to the phraseology of the British prime minister, it's to do with social justice. It's to do with getting young people onto this property ladder for the first time. And you now see how the initial move in, which was life support, morphs into something else. Uh, So there's a practical example of how it's morphing into something else. Uh, And I think we'll see a lot more of that morphing as time goes on. So absolutely, it'll be recovery loans after the kind of survival loans. And expect yep. soon to see particularly green investment loans going out. So it is. Uh, I think we already see some early indications of how this changes into a very different thing. And if a government controls a commercial bank, then it controls a commercial banking system, then it controls the supply of money. So you're absolutely right. I mean, a lot of this depends on more of it coming. But I would point out that there is 17.5% more money in the world than last year. Uh, it's not particularly being spent. Uh, but just wait until there's no lockdown. I mean, the money's not going to go away. You know, you've got the first big pulse of money. We're going to see the effect of that. But the core call is this is the beginning of a new program and not the end. Okay, so you just touched on something else that I think is pretty important. And I want to make sure uh, that I understand what you're saying here. Because I, when I read it, I think I understood. But again, I, I want I want some clarity. I think it, how much of your inflation, uh, again, and I know it's already happening. I know you're you're saying what you, this is not a forecast. This has happened in the last six months. How much of your belief that it continues to happen hinges on, you know, kind of a vaccine happening and the economy opening back up? Uh, Because I think what you just said is the money that went out so far, it's just filling the holes of the money that's collapsing. Right. So it's 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 steadying the boat, so to speak. And so that that it stopped the disinflation. But I think to get to inflation, we need to have more of it without any more water leaking out of the bucket, so to speak. And so I, I guess it's your belief that that this uh, the economy will start to open up in the next six, 12 months and, sure. and expand from there. Is yeah. that is that right? 
The first thing I'd say is that whenever it happens, you and I will go back to acting normally again. It's just a matter of time as to when it happens, but we don't we don't know when it's going to happen. But it is going to happen, and the money that we've added doesn't get destroyed between now and then. In fact, it gets added to. It may not get added to at seventeen and a half percent per annum, but it gets added yeah. to. I actually think we're going to have an explosive year for GDP next year. And that's not just about a vaccine. It's about a vaccine. It's about uh, instantaneous testing, which actually, you know, brings a lot of the economy uh, back into play. It's the fact that the mortality rates associated with this disease are, will go down. That's what happens. Human ingenuity finds ways to to deal with that. And it's about the really, really sad fact that, you know, these diseases tend to hit really hard on the vulnerable part of our society. And then the society moves on. And the one thing about human beings is they, they have an ability to do that. So I'm really, really confident that we'll come back at some stage, but actually that it will be early next year. But Brent, there's something much more important happening than my forecast. It's already happening. The problem is it's happening in places that we don't usually look. So I'm sure most of your viewers will know that if you're trying to buy a boat or a yacht in the United States at the minute, you run out of inventory, right? The classic car market is doing very well. The art market is doing well. The antiques market is doing very well. And if I ask anybody in those businesses, why do they suddenly think there's been a lease of life for those businesses? They really attribute it to cancelled holidays, that the average consumer has in the budget a portion, let's say $2,000 for their annual holiday. Suddenly the holiday's cancelled. They've got $2,000. Now, what's desperately bad for the economy is if they don't spend the $2,000. Yeah, right. know, the saving rate is up for sure. It's gone from 7.5% to 14%. That's still a big number. But you go back to May, it was 33%. So I think the very encouraging thing for me is money is finding a way to flow. The problem for Wall Street economists is that they all live in midtown Manhattan. So when they walk down the street in midtown Manhattan, they see very clearly that there isn't a lot going on. But human beings are very, very inventive. And this money is already flowing somewhere. And that gives me great courage and enthusiasm that when we lift some of the barriers to normal behavior, it is going to explode into the real economy. And I mean explode because one of the other things statistically is that inventories are very low, very low. And if you've got low inventory in the system and you suddenly get a surge in demand, then you expect prices to go up particularly quickly. And a longer term trend, which we might come back to, is a lot of this relates to China and whether we are to have the relationship with China for the next 30 years that we had for the last 30 years. And if that in any way constrains supply, it feeds into this longer term inflation debate. But being no doubt, I think it's inflation next year. I've said OECD inflation will be at 4% or above by next year. It's currently at one2 So that's a very aggressive forecast. I don't usually make forecasts like that. But this money is there and it's finding a way to circulate. So let me, you know, I, I wanted to ask you about that 4% number because I, I read that and you attributed it to the, you know, the growth of the money supply and then velocity just normalizing. Is there some formula? I, I couldn't figure out the formula that took, you know, the growth of the money supply and the normalization of velocity that got you to 4%. Is yeah. it just kind of an estimate that you had or is there some kind of formulaic way, way you did it? It's an estimate. If I was stricken okay. strictly to the to the formula, I'd be going for much higher levels of inflation than four okay. percent. Because if you put if you increase the supply of money from seventeen percent from the end of last year and velocity normalizes, then you're absolutely expecting much much higher levels of inflation than four percent. So even now, I would say to you, I think I'm right at the low end of the range. Uh, let's let's be clear what the current level of inflation in America is. The PCE, the personal consumption expenditure deflator for September is 1.6%. It's already gone from 0.9% at its low this year to 1.6%. 
you know, it isn't a huge leap from 1.6% to 4%, but in the markets, it's a massive leap. I mean, there's basically nobody who will believe that inflation is going to hit 4% next year, but we're already going from 09 to 1.6 yeah. with, with a savings rate that's still at 14%. And I think that savings rate will be this time next year, maybe as early as next summer, it'll be back to about 8%. And that excess money will be circulating. Well, you know, you just touched on something else that we should probably define because, you know, we get whenever I mention inflation, people will come back and say, of course, we have inflation. My cost of living's higher. These asset prices are higher. So when when you're talking about, uh, you know, inflation, are you talking about CPI or is there some other number that you're talking about? No, I'm happy in the context, this context to talk purely about CPI. And I say to people all the time is if. If the uh, we're getting near Christmas, so if the genie appears with a with a lamp and offers you, you know, one wish, ask for a chart of the future progression of inflation, because if we knew that one statistic, we can at least know where we should be on the bonds, right? Which is a yeah a significant portion of someone's uh, someone's portfolio. But I think it's the one economic indicator that can give you some idea on where you should be and what you should be yeah. investing in. Ask, ask for that one. So this is the important one to focus on. There are a thousand things you should be looking yeah. at. This yeah. is really so important. And the market, after 40 years of disinflation, the market is prone not to believe it. Okay, so now we've, we, we've explained you know, why we had a deflationary environment. We've explained why you believe we're moving into an inflationary environment. Um, so, and we, and we started to talk about when you expect it to show up, whether it's you know, six months or 12 months, or you, know, you, you think it's coming sooner than most. Uh, so I guess my next question is where, and what I mean by that is, do you mean this on a global basis? Do you mean it in the United States? Do you mean it uh, in the emerging markets? Um, you know, and, and then as a as a kind of a corollary to that, in which currency? Okay, so I see it in every developed world economy, because every developed world economy has has already seen this step change in the growth in the supply of money. So there are really no exceptions in the developed world. Uh, does it get to emerging markets? Well, it kind of has to. If it's you know if it's the entire developed world doing it, it's very hard to see how they avoid it. They, I think, have been more disciplined than emerging markets. China has been particularly disciplined, and that's for a unique reason we can perhaps come back to. But look, if the developed world is going to produce inflation like this, it is clearly going to spread uh, to the emerging markets uh, as well. In terms of which emer- which developed world markets are likely to get to the inflation uh, first. Uh, it probably is the United States of America because you have produced that. I mean, if I give you those broad money growth numbers again, uh, we're looking at Europe and Japan being up to close to 10, but we're looking at America 24%. So it's just been significantly more aggressive in America. Canada is not far behind at 16%. Uh, I think Australia is 12 and America, uh, UK is 14. So perhaps America gets there first, but be and no doubt that it's coming absolutely every, everywhere because those numbers, even in Europe, those numbers have doubled in six months. It's just in America, they kind of tripled. So uh, that's that's the difference. But this is across the developed world. And it's part, I mean, I, I should have made this clear. We haven't really talked about this yet. Is it is part of policy to have higher inflation? It's not as if it's going to be a surprise. Yeah. It's not as if nobody wants it. Arguably, yeah, yeah. quantitative easing has been trying to achieve it for a long time. And the rationale behind higher inflation is to bring down debt to GDP ratio and that's kind of the final point in inflation. It has to get the wages. If it doesn't get the wages, it doesn't work. Certainly in the household sector, debt to GDP does not come down in the household sector. If or Debt sustainability doesn't come down in the household sector unless this gets the wages. And I think that is where your election is so important. And the massive turnout 
in, in the U.S. election, I think tells us something about wage growth and that wage growth, this, this election tells me wage growth is going up. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, the, 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 the topic of wage growth, I think, is important because, again, when we talk about inflation, people always say, well, you know, my cost of living has gone up. Of course, there's inflation. I think sometimes they get confused with prices going up with their uh, wages being deflating. Right. Um, um, so whereas uh, especially the blue collar workers like like you talk about, they, they've seen no wage growth in you know 20 or 30 years or whatever it is relative to prices. Um, and so, you know, for inflation to show up, I agree that somehow this has to translate in, into wage growth. Um, so, so here's a question. If, if, if we see this inflation showing up in the, call it the developed world, Europe, uh, you know, the United States, Canada, uh, kind of the G8 countries, for lack of a better word, what does that mean for the euro and what does that mean for the dollar um, and, and some of the other currencies? Uh, if we look at the dollar index, you know, it's made up of the yen and the euro and, you know, some of the Nordic countries and I think the Swiss franc. And, you know, so do we get inflation in the U.S. with the U.S. dollar falling or do we get inflation in the U.S. with the U.S. dollar rising? Because fiat currencies trade relative to each other. Right. So they can't all go down. One of them has to rise. And so, you know, I guess what, what do you see? How do you see this playing out in different currencies? Okay, so just before I do that, I, I just want to talk about the election because you and I kind of know oh, yeah. Sorry. what I've written, written about the election, but I don't yeah. think anybody else does. So yeah. to me, the fundamental thing is that blue-collar workers have re-engaged with both parties, not just with one party, but with both parties. Trump began that process. He's taken it much further, and now the Democrats have obviously jumped ahead in terms. So for a, for a generation, I think the blue-collar workers said, none, none of these guys are working for me. <laughs> There's no point in me turning up. They're not working for me. Uh, what what Trump showed is that whether you like it or not, is that the Republican Party can do something for the blue collar worker. And many blue collar workers believe that or they wouldn't have turned out in so, so many numbers. So now the battlefield is the blue collar worker for the first time, I would say, in a generation. So you've got to expect policies from Republicans and from Democrats to, to help the blue collar worker. And at the, what is the bottom line on that is wage growth. That's what the bottom line is. And there are all sorts of things that can be done to get wage growth growing, going up. So that is the future, and it's a global thing as well that this is happening. So that's why I think it's very, very important for not just the U.S., but for the world. In terms of currencies, I have a real problem with the euro because I don't think it is a currency. It's, a, it's an experiment, yeah. and uh, you know, it's an attempt to create a currency. And, of course, it's been going for 20 years, so most people would say, well, it's a currency because it's been going for, for 20 years. Well, that's not the way currencies work. The way to get a currency to work is you, you jam all these countries together and then basically there's internal economic adjustment and price adjustment until everything levels out. Uh, you know, to the United States being a being a, a good example, takes a long time. And then you get there. And of course, American currency went to zero twice. Uh, once it was a, a continental that went to zero. Second time, it was a Confederate note that went to zero. So even your own attempt to build a currency had a few, uh, a few failures in it. The real problem right at the middle of Europe is the debt to GDP difference between France and Germany. So the numbers are going up very, very quickly now in this pandemic. But by Christmas, we should be in a world where Germany's total debt to GDP ratio is 200% of GDP and France is 400. Now, what we have discussed so far is how you inflate away debts. Look, if you and I were running a country where half of it had that debt to GDP ratio and half of it the other, you could not create a monetary policy that would work for both. So the currency, to me, remains flawed. So I'm really pretty optimistic on the dollar, despite the conversation that we've had earlier, because the real flaws in the euro have been postponed. 
they haven't been solved. They've simply yeah. been postponed. Uh, and this crisis shows up. So you should expect, I think, capital flight from Europe. And arguably, we've seen quite a bit of that. I mean, this is a, this is a zone with a very large current account surplus. America's a zone with a very large current account deficit. And yet it's the dollar that's been going up for years relative to the euro. So uh, and that must be because people are getting capital out of, of Europe. So I think that will exacerbate. It's very bullish uh, for the dollar. And uh, I've, I've been doing this a long time. I've been doing it 25 years writing, and I've never heard more bearishness on the dollar from Americans. Uh, usually, if you've got an accent... Tell me about it. If you've you got an accent like mine and you're bearish in the dollar, that's acceptable. But to hear the Americans talking about the demise of the dollar and the end of the dollar, I can see why it is. You know, you're desperately focused on the politics. You're desperately focused on the division. But... Uh, Things aren't that bad. Other countries have got, as you said, it's a relative call. And other problems have much bigger problems, I think, than the United States of America. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-ads.com. Okay, so you just touched on something that's kind of very important and something that I've talked about a lot and I've gotten a lot of pushback on it. And I, I want to hear your thoughts on this. And I, I think you just kind of expressed it a little bit was that, you know, it, in my opinion, it's possible to have inflation along with rising rates and a strengthening dollar. And I think a lot of people intuitively think if you have inflation, it means your currency is going down. Yeah. So I, I and I think but but I think people forget that in a relative world where 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 currencies, fiat currencies do not trade on intrinsic value, but rather relative value. That's not necessarily the case. Um, do you know of a good way to just kind of explain that simply? We, we could go back to the early 1980s, and you could see that inflation is coming down as the dollar is going up. This is one of the great bull runs in the dollar under the Reagan presidency. But inflation was coming down. I mean, it wasn't zero, and it wasn't below zero, and it was a hell of a lot higher than it is today. And from memory, it was certainly above 4%. So there was a sign when the dollar was going up, and the inflation rate was already above 4%. So the rate of inflation may have been coming down, but actually you still had Inflation. So there's a reasonable historical precedent for a period of a strong dollar and yet inflation at a high level. It was nowhere near as low as it is today. The other way I'd put it is this. We are living through a structural change. And hopefully some of the discussion we've had is you know, pointing to that massive structural change, which is you know, more inflation, but also more government, more involvement of government. And uh, that comes in the entire developed world. Uh, but I think it comes in America just a bit slower, maybe because of the Constitution, uh, maybe just because of the nature of what America is. And that's an issue for capital flight. And in, in discussing Europe, I've already mentioned capital flight. So if the reason your currency is going up is because people want to put more money into your assets because they believe they're safer or higher return or whatever, yes, the dollar goes up. Yes, you dampen import price inflation potentially. Uh, but actually, you know, that money's coming in because you're in a great economic boom. And that money that's coming in is uh, not necessarily coming in because inflation is going down. It's coming in to participate in the economic recovery. And I guess the final part of this, because we, when we talk about big currencies, we have to talk about the renminbi as well. And if that's, China, I definitely, I definitely want to talk about the, I definitely want to talk about China. Hard to interrupt. That's okay. If we're ostracizing China from the global trading regime, so I'm not talking about America. I'm talking about a global ostracization. You're going to get inflation, and you're going to get a strong dollar. 
that's the nature of the beast. If you if so, you've got all these structural forces, and I think people who are calling a weak dollar are looking at the cyclical forces. America may grow faster; its current account may get worse, but they're not looking at this great structural schism that's coming in the world uh, for the euro, for the renminbi, and why that is positive for the dollar. And you can have growth and dollar and inflation all at the same time. But the, I mean, why has inflation been low for many many years and falling? Definitely lack of money supply growth, but also China. And China's a busted flush. It's a busted flush because it's had massive wage growth, so it's not as deflationary. But it's potentially an even bigger busted flush because we're in a cold war with China. And you don't trade with people in a cold war. Okay, so you've just touched on two issues that I definitely want to talk about, and they kind, they kind of relate to each other. You have said that Cap Day is coming. And Cap Day, again, I'm not going to speak for you, but Cap Day refers to capping rates. Um but why don't you explain what cap rates are, what cap day is, and then we'll go into how that's going to affect different countries and different currencies. Yeah. So as inflation picks up, interest rates pick up. We all know that. There is a problem, however. We've got record high debt to GDP ratios. I mean, record. They're above World War II levels for most countries, if you add the private sector and the public sector together. So if interest rates start to go up when you've got record high debt to GDP ratios, everybody might go bankrupt. The answer to that is not to let them go up. Now, we have lived in a system for three decades or more where the market determines long-term interest rates. Now, we've gradually come out of that during quantitative easing, um, but ultimately the rate stayed down for the best possible reason. There was no inflation. I'm arguing that if inflation is coming back, rates are going up, but at some stage that will be a disaster. Uh, and this is right across the developed world. There are really no exceptions to this. It's not an American phenomenon. So how do you cap rates? And I don't mean policy rates. I mean long-term rates. You have to find someone to buy all the government debt at a preset, predetermined interest rate. Uh, and to me, that is clearly going to be mean forcing savings institutions to do that, not the central bank. Imagine this skip forward just six months where inflation is higher. But more importantly, you and I actually believe inflation is going even higher. We are ditching our government debt. But the government declares that, you know, you know, if banks are going to price their loans off the five-year bond. The five-year bond is now yielding two and a half these guys are pricing at three and a half. Corporates are really struggling to pay that. The guy in the street is struggling to pay it. We've got to cap it. The last thing that you could do then is use the central bank's balance sheet to cap rates because you and I as investors would be saying there's too much money in the system. There's too much inflation in the system. Interest rates are too low. And the central bank would respond by printing more money and pushing interest rates even lower. So the cap day, to me, cap day is when we go to the big savings institutions of America and we force them to buy government debt at bad prices. And people will say that's constitutionally legally impossible but of course we've done it before and more aggressively in europe yep. after world war ii than america but that is what cap cap day is and just finally on that the re reason that cap day is so interesting is that to buy these bonds they have to sell something and it's what they sell that i'm most interested in because it primarily would be equities and also cap day lasts for at least a decade it doesn't last for six months or nine months or 12 months it lasts for a decade so that's why cap day i think is so important because once again, it changes the very nature of what our economy is. It, the government is now determining the interest rates right along the curve. The government is determining where your savings go if they're in a regulated institution. The government's determining the supply of money through owning the banking system. Uh, and this is capitalism with Chinese characteristics. As I think about this and, and I look around the world, I'm curious what, 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 how you see the progression. Because I, I would think that Cap Day would first come to China. And then it would go to the countries who primarily export to China. So let's say, if I had to guess, I'd say it starts in China. 
And then it goes to Australia and Canada, Chile, places like that who have to export to China. And as that happens, you know, the, the renminbi starts to lose value. It starts to push the dollar higher. And now we get back into this situation where all this U.S. dollar debt out there and if the dollar's rising at the same time and putting pressure on these countries who have borrowed in dollars uh, at the same time that they're trying to do cap day on their local local currencies. Am I thinking about this incorrectly? So I, I've tried to estimate who goes first. And what I've looked at is debt service ratios uh, for the private sector, which are all if anybody who's watching this, you can get them on the Bank of International uh, Settlements website and looked at who is most strained currently in servicing debt, because they're the people least likely to be able to allow interest rates to go up, all private right. sector. But you're absolutely right to focus on China, because the two big economies in the world that, I, that are top of this big economies, I'll come back to the smaller ones, are China and France, <laughs> France as well. Yeah, so you're right. France is at the core of that currency. So you know, in, in a single currency zone, you cannot, you're supposed to have one cap. You, know, you can't say... Yeah capping French rates at three and we're capping German rates at four because in a free movement of capital, it's a euro. We'd all move and get the four and, and not the three. So they've got two huge economies. Now, America can live with materially higher interest rates. And I don't want to go into the numbers, but I, I, I have tried to calculate some numbers for this, uh, but ultimately has to cap as well. But at least in America, rates can rise significantly higher because your debt service ratio is, is, is a bit lower, not massively yeah. lower. And if you want to look around the world to find the, the countries with really, really low debt service ratios that probably don't have to get into this huge structural shift, they are in the emerging markets. Uh, and I would particularly, in terms of big big economies, I would single out India as an economy where the you know debt service ratio is very low, debt to GDP is very low. Maybe they don't have to do any of this. You'd be interested in the small economies that are really high up on that list as well, because they are the ones you mentioned, Canada and Australia, actually Sweden and Norway. Uh, but Canada, there are lots of different ways you can try to use the debt metrics to give you some objectivity on what that means for cap day and inflation. And Canada's got some of the worst metrics in the world. Oh, they're awful. They're horrible. <laughs> Sorry to laugh, but yeah, they're, they're, they're not good. They're not good. Let's talk about just, we, we touched on China. Why don't we just focus there a little bit more, uh, just because I want people to understand, again, um, kind of the, because it, it has so much impact on the rest of the world, right? And and you've said that they're in a debt trap, um, and that the recent strength in the the renminbi or the, the yuan, whatever you want to call it, um, is actually a misnomer because it's actually reflecting potential weakness rather than actual strength. Uh, can, can you explain that in your in your own words and why 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 that is and why you think that the renminbi will actually fall in value? Yeah. So first of all, it's not a floating exchange rate; it's a managed exchange rate, and therefore where it goes and where it doesn't really tell you very much at all. You know, if it, like the Hong Kong dollar hasn't gone anywhere since the fifteenth of October, nineteen eighty three. Yeah. What does that tell you about Hong Kong? It tells you absolutely nothing. Nothing. <laughs> what you need to do is you need to look behind that to see how they keep it there. So. Now, it's not a peg, it's a link, it's a managed exchange rate. But let's look behind the way the exchange rate moves. Now, when you look behind it in Hong Kong, what would you look at? You look at foreign exchange reserves to see if they're going up. And then you would look at the total quantity of Hong Kong dollars. And around the managed exchange rate, those are the two things that would tell you whether there's upward pressure on the currency or downward pressure on the currency. But the currency itself would tell you absolutely nothing. So when we look behind these numbers for China, what you see in the foreign exchange reserves is they're really not doing very much. They had a Big fall from 2014, they had a bottom, they went up a little bit, and they kind of trickle sideways to slightly up. 
But more importantly, when you look behind that to the total supply of renminbi, which is related to this, these are the assets of the central bank, it's uh, foreign exchange reserves. So the liabilities of that, just like quantitative easing, are the size of the central bank balance sheet. The size of the central bank balance sheet has contracted over four years. I mean, show me an economy anywhere in the world with a central bank balance sheet. So to get the exchange rate to do what it's doing, we are changing liquidity and monetary policy in China. And we're not loosening monetary policy. We're tightening monetary policy. So I think it's a fallacy to look at a managed exchange rate and, and say it tells you anything. Look at what that's forcing them to do. And it's actually forcing them to run by their own standards, a relatively tight monetary policy. So we're actually getting to a world where maybe by year end, the growth in the total amount of yen in the world could exceed the growth in the total amount of renminbi, which if I told you that a year ago, we would have laughed hysterically that such a thing, <laughs> such a thing was possible. Uh, so China knows how to play this game. And what they're desperately trying to do to keep the game going is to suck in as much capital as possible. And that is what the whole drive has been for several years. And the great excitement for people who are much more optimistic on China than I am is that everybody in the world is going to buy Chinese RMB denominated government debt. And that capital inflow into that country will hold the currency steady, get the foreign exchange reserves going up, and crucially on the other side of that, get their central bank balance sheet expanding. And that is the Hail Mary for China. And without it, they're in deep trouble. And there are some people who think the Hail Mary will work. There are some people who think it won't work. And there are some people who think uh, Mr. Rubio being a very good example, who think America should be trying to stop that Hail Mary from working. Well, so, so along those lines, do you think that the, the recent strength in the renminbi, again, it's a set rate, it's a managed, uh, it's a managed level. Do you think they managed it to the high end uh, because of the election, you know, moving towards the election? Or do you think it's just random? I think you have, the U.S. election. If you think of the U.S. Secretary Treasury for year after year after year, until this administration, where things are slightly more random, the, the, the Secretary of the Treasury of the United States always has to say that America is in favor of a strong dollar. Now, why would he have to say that? There's a very obvious reason why you have to say that. If the dollar is weak, if you talk a dollar down, there's nothing you can do to reverse it. You know, you, you might as well tell everybody it's going to be a strong currency, because if it starts falling, the only way you could turn that around would be to put interest rates up, and you wouldn't want to do that. So it's really important if you're managing an exchange rate, even a floating rate like America, to always talk your currency up, to always talk. Because if you want to bring it down, you can you can do that, but you've got to talk it up. So I think they have to do everything they possibly can to convince people that this is a strong currency. You know, if you want to suck money into the RMB uh, government bond market, you know, OK, so it's got a higher yield. But if the currency devalues by 30 percent, who cares? So yeah. you've got to always create the illusion of strength. The illusion of strength is really important in sucking in all this capital. And based on the conversations I have with investment managers, it's being successful. And they are convincing fund managers of this. I, I don't get the argument, but uh, they're convincing people. So it is it is this Hail Mary. The ball is in the air. It's heading into the end zone. And maybe they'll pull it off. But it's, uh, it's the biggest bet in finance that they are playing here. And then there's some sign. They've, they've got a couple of guys under the ball. So who knows? Maybe they'll, maybe they'll pick it up. Yeah, yeah. So, okay. So... Um, let's rewind a little bit because what we we talked about earlier is, you know, we were in deflation because the central bank policies just for 10 years didn't work. We're now moving into, by your estimation, an inflationary environment because the policy is now being mandated by governments rather than set by central banks. Um, and then we talked about cap day, about capping rates. Now, who caps the rates? Do the central banks cap the rates, or do the governments cap the rates? So the rate I guess you're saying I guess you're saying the governments do because they mandate people buy the government securities. That's Is that right? 
Yeah, it's called macroprudential regulation. And macroprudential regulation are perhaps the three most dangerous words in the English language if you happen to be a saver. And it's not coincidental that they almost scan with motherhood and apple pie. You know, how could you stand up in public and be against prudential regulation? But what that tool, it's a tool of government, not a tool of central bankers. It's a tool of government to force you, not you as an individual, but you if you have money in a, in a wrapper, which is regulated, to own an asset that you know will provide a negative real return. So it's, it's using that tool of regulation to uh, by government. So that's what I mean by the government now determines long-term rates. If they say, look, we don't think the bond yield should be above two and a half, then fine, they can do that. Uh, they can absolutely mandate that through that and you lose as a saver. And of course, savers will be pretty up in arms in that. I think you know one of the reasons it comes to America later is that you have a judicial system and this would clearly go into the judicial system uh, all the way to the Supreme Court. I'll let your viewers who know the Supreme Court better than I judge what the Supreme Court might do with it. But, you know, that is a protection, I think, a greater protection for American savers than perhaps when I'm looking at a map of Spain behind you there and a map of yeah. France. I'm not sure I would feel so comfortable going into the legal system in Spain and France to protest that the government's use of macroprudential regulation was a form of theft. Yeah. Well, do you, OK, so we've talked about a little bit about where cap day comes first, where it needs to come from an economic perspective, where do you think it's easiest to come from a legal perspective? I mean, I guess if you're, you know, you've got a dictatorship or some kind of a top-down managed economy where you don't have to necessarily get parliament or Congress's approval, it's maybe a bit easier. But does does the ease of which you can institute macroprudential policies affect where you think it comes first, or you think they just all have to do it so it doesn't really matter? So I think they all have to do it, but it absolutely affects the sequencing. And I would put America towards the end of that list because of the reasons we've just mentioned. Uh, China China already does it to some extent. You know, there's no way that anybody in China can stop the government doing whatever it likes. A lot of this is to do with can you control the financial institutions? Well, in China, they own them. So the answer is clearly yes. Of course, they can control the financial institutions. So it's not even up for doubt that, they, that, that China can do it. All I'm arguing to you is that it's probably ultimately incompatible with the stable exchange rate when they begin to do it. But mainland Europe is the easy place to do it because you know there's a long history in uh, mainland Europe of owning, sometimes owning outright, or manipulating the financial system for political ends. And I don't think there's much of a legal challenge to that. So I would put mainland Europe second. I'm not, I mean, be clear, we all get there. This yeah. this excessively high debt to GDP ratio thing, you know, it's it's global. It's gonna we're gonna we're all gonna have to do this. But that's where I think it comes first. And it's one of the reasons, Brent, for being a bit more enthusiastic on the dollar because it, the dollar is just behind the uh, curve on this. And I guess the final thing we should mention on all of this is when we look at the history of these policies, they've never been successful without capital controls. If I you say that, that is, it's requirement, right? Yeah. Well, this, in some ways, this is a capital control. If I mandate to the savings institutions of Spain that they can only buy Spanish government debt, well, that is a capital control. I'm, I'm saying to one of the biggest owners, not owners, but custodians of savings in Spain, you can't take your money and put it into German government debt or British government debt. That is a form of capital control. So macroprudential regulation is, an, is a, this is why it's so interesting. It's a lovely new phrase for some, you know, it's a, it's a new jar. It's putting some very old medicine into some very old uh, jars. Well, you, you, you can actually see over the last, let's go, four years, maybe it started four or five years ago. Not that they've started putting the, ca the the capital controls in place, but they've started making steps to a way that they could put them in control easier. If you look at money market funds, right, they've, they, they've, they've started forcing, not forcing, but 
through regulation, kind of encouraging, for lack of a better word, you know, government-sponsored money market funds rather than corporate-sponsored money market funds. I guess, you know, and, and I think they do the same in, in other parts of the world, too. But to me, that's just a way to, you know, it's not necessarily a capital control, but you can see where it could become one, right, um, to, to, the way you've defined it. I keep getting told that you can't have capital controls in the modern world. And yet in the developed world, we have recently had them in Greece, in Cyprus and Iceland. That's just the developed world. If you go across the emerging world, they're everywhere. And let me tell you the easy way to have capital controls. If you break the rules, you go to jail. That usually works. Unless you're a bank. <laughs> unless you're a bank, which you pay or, a $1 billion fine. Unless you're a banker in Iceland. And, you know, uh, they're the one place that actually did it. Yeah, and I, and I know the man who did it, and uh, I'm hoping to get right? him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he actually, uh, I want to plug his book. I don't even think it's published yet. But please look out. There's a book coming out from the man who did it, and this is his story. And it's, if it's not out yet, it'll be out sometime next year. So look out for that. Is that the name of it, The Man Who Did It? No, no, I can't remember the name of the book yet, but, but he has written it, and I've seen draft of it, and uh, he's a great guy. And uh, so uh, I think if you just Google Iceland and bankers in, in Amazon next year, the name of his book will pop up, and he, he did it. So. Got it. Okay. So based on everything you've told me and everything I've read, I, I understand where you're coming from on the why we're moving into inflation. Again, I'm not quite sure that I agree yet, but I, I understand the logic, and I can see how it could happen. Here's one of the things that I have the most trouble with, and help me understand this. And, and we're, so we're, let's go back to central banks. You've talked about the monetary policy for years has been set, for decades has been set by central banks. Central banks have enormous power. Probably, I would argue that central bankers are one of the smallest groups that has more power over the greatest number of people in the world. And you've argued that that power is now slipping from their grasp and it's going into the hands of elected officials who are, you know, uh, so inclined to give the money to their constituents so they get reelected. And I understand that. But what I have problem with is I've never seen, you know, with the possible exception of George Washington and, you know, Cincinnatus, anybody have great power and just willingly give it away. And so I have a hard time seeing the central banks just saying, OK, it's yours. We won't fight it. Do you think that they, they're they just out of bullets and so they're just giving up? Or do you think it's because they're all going to kind of work together and they've just said, OK, you take the lead. We'll play second fiddle. So I think if we go back to where we were in March, they were out of bullets. So they were really grateful that the government came along with new bullets. So they weren't going to argue with this. Uh, you know, just to refresh, the government gets in and the government forces that back. And they weren't going to argue with that because, you know, they were, you know, this was going to be the worst, this is going to be their worst performance since the Great Depression because they were out of books. Yep. Uh, you know, they could backstop credit markets, clearly, and they did that and they will continue to do that. And that's what they're good at and they can do that. But in terms of creating growth in money and nominal GDP growth, they were out of bullets. So they're delighted to have it. So they've done absolutely nothing yet. Now let's skip forward to, I think, even less than a year. And the governments are still going with this. And America's money supply growth was still growing at 24%. I don't think it'll be that high, but it'll be a lot higher. And they want to do something about it. Okay, so what are they going to do about it? The government, remember what the government has done. The government is making, is forcing loans at an interest rate they choose for a duration they choose to people they choose. So that's your small business administration loans. How does the central bank stop it? So you jack up interest rates, but the government, so let's say interest rates, spent, let's pick a high number. Interest rates went to 4%. The government tells the banks to lend at 
Are they going to are they going to not lend at two percent? If the government controls the banks, that credit keeps going anyway. Now, of course, the four percent rate is going to very negatively affect, let's say, you and me, because we don't get the benefit of small business administration lending. So you're really going to screw one bit of this of the economy, which is let's call it the more privately financed bit of the economy. But then we, you and I, would then go and instantly try and get onto any of these government credit programs because the price of credit isn't going up there. So there will definitely come a bit when the central bankers fight back, but they'll lose because unless they get the government structurally out of the commercial banking system, the tools they have to combat inflation will not be sufficient. So they they, they willingly give these tools up because there, there was no other option for them in uh, February, March this year. But because the government has the ability to control that, the reins they have, the ones I discussed at the beginning, interest rates, size of balance sheet, perhaps capital adequacy rules, they're insufficient if a government can run part of the banking system. And that's kind of the history of the the post-World War II period. Also remember, and I think Arthur Burns is the best person to discuss this in the light of, Arthur Burns was the central bank governor in the late 60s, early 70s. You know, he didn't do a lot to combat inflation and gets a lot of criticism for it. But America was in turmoil. I mean, political turmoil. There was a war to fight and central bankers compromised and they didn't do what it was right with interest rates. Uh, all, I mean, and my final point on this, which is maybe slightly insulting, is that central bankers are, are predominantly academics. So you show me a brave, courageous academic prepared to lay their pension on the line for independence of monetary policy and maybe I'll change my mind. Okay, well, so you just touched on something else that I've always kind of, I've never really believed it. I've understood the concept of it, but I've never really believed it. So I'm just curious what you think. Do do you think central banks have ever really been independent? I mean, really behind the scenes, have they ever been independent? So they would say they have been independent, uh, but you got to think, I mean, I I have rather facetiously in the past described a central banker as a person who would permit inflation in anything except wages. Once you say that, though, and yeah. you're, laughing at, you're laughing at it, which I think means there's at least a kernel of truth in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, in, it's instantaneously a political organization, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Because, you know, most people in America, their form of remuneration comes in the form of, yeah. of wages. So, uh, so I'm not saying that they are politically biased against blue-collar workers. I'm just saying that their intellectual framework, because of what happened in the 1970s, because of this wage inflation spiral, has pushed them to have a view, the Phillips curve, a view of the world which has made them uh, benefit capital at the expense of labor. Now, Brent, there's a three-hour discussion on, on all of this, uh, but that, that, is, you know, that is kind of where they've come from. It's why I think this election is so important. The blue-collar worker is, you know, is now the, is the important voter in determining who holds power, and the more we are going to go after that blue-collar worker, the more that has to be focused on on wages. And that focus the central bankers have had historically, which has actually been questioned now, the Phillips curve and this relationship between inflation and wage inflation, is gone. So I'm not saying that they were deliberately uh, biased one way or the other, but their ethos did benefit one section of society over another. So do you think that there will be a battle at all between the central banks and the and the governments? Or do you think it'll just be pretty simple? All the battles will take place behind the scenes. Like, like will it be open? Like, will there be an open battle that people can see? Or do you think it will just kind of be taken care of behind the scenes and the central banks are, you know, all the governments have to do is say, we just passed the law, your charter's changed, and it's done. So do you, do you think that'll play out in the public? Or will it just kind of be behind the scenes? 
I think in public there'll be something because everybody who's a central banker will want to save face. And the way you save face, yeah, well, that, that, yeah. you do something in public and then you surrender. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Got it. Got it. And what about the banks themselves? Because again, okay, so you know, the, the central banks are incredibly powerful, but the banks themselves have incredible power, right? Um, you, you could argue that by not lending, the banks have held the economy hostage, right? And so now they've got governors and, you know, congressmen and, you know, politicians telling them who and when to make a loan to, um, they basically just become a utility. So that is a fantastic point and a really, really, really important one, because I think the American banking system in particular is incredibly politically powerful. And I think any citizen of America knows how they're politically powerful. So that means the resistance is much stronger from the American banking system than it might be from other banking systems. They're much weaker all across the world, and they've been regularly owned by their own governments in the past. So the American banking system stands up stronger but yeah absolutely and i think that's absolutely right they are a in art they become starting perhaps in europe and they've always been in china utilities of the government and it's why i don't own bank stocks particularly in europe where i think we're very close to this already uh, there's probably still quite a lot of upside in the cyclical recovery in in uh, american bank stocks but if we're sitting here five and ten years from now it'll become clear that that thing has become a utility of the utility of the state even in the united states of america Though I think the resistance will be much, much stronger, uh, given the uh, political power that those institutions have and uh, play in America. Makes sense. Okay, so the other battle, while this, while, while the battle takes place between central bankers, bankers, and congressmen, they're basically fighting over the blue-collar workers, right? Um, and that means that there's also simultaneously a battle going on between savers and borrowers, and the young and the old. So what does that mean? For countries around the world who now, you know, for the let's say for the last 30 or 40 years, for the most part, things have been fairly socially stable, at least in the West. But in the last 10 years, you've started to see, you know, at first it started in northern Africa and then it was in the Middle East and then it was in Europe. And now you're starting to see it in the United States. The social fabric is not quite as solid as it used to be. And you're seeing you know, riots and frustrations and, you know, uh, public demonstrations. Do you think that this macro prudential policies that will come from the top down government will lead to bottom up social unrest? So uh, this is called financial repression. And when I've tried to explain it in very simple terms, I call it stealing money from old people slowly. This is why I like reading yours. I always get great quotes. I get, I get great one liners. Well, I want to just stress the slowly bit. Because if done slowly enough, the saver won't, I mean, of course, the saver will realize, but the saver won't scream. Yeah. So let me give you my definition of slowly, which is kind of nominal rates not going above two, inflation never going above six, maybe never going above four. And very slowly, that's a transfer of wealth from old people who live on fixed, in, fixed income to young people who borrow. And that socially is kind of gets you there over a very long period of time without per perhaps the saver absolutely screaming. The problem is that controlling inflation is an incredibly difficult thing to do. And at any given point in time, it can spike out of control. So uh, I, there is a gentleman uh, who I know called Ray Dalio. He refers to this as the beautiful deleveraging. And uh, done at that controlled pace, it is indeed beautiful. It's not beautiful if you're a saver, but it's unbeautiful, unbeautiful in a slow fashion. Uh, so maybe that can be pulled off. But ultimately, I think at some stage you probably lose control of inflation, which is where you really do get social problems. But if they could just kind of preset inflation for interest rates to leave it for 20 years, 
we have we have got a there's a massive transfer of wealth over that period to young people away from old people. It's just happening slowly and incrementally, and you might get away with it. It is a higher risk, or more likely that at some stage in the process, it's not four and two, it's two and ten or something like that, and that's when things start to go go very awry. But be in no doubt that this is this is what's going to happen. It's just of can you do it in a controlled fashion or an uncontrolled fashion, and depending on whether you control or uncontrolled depends how much social unrest you might get. That's just on that one issue. There are many other things that can cause uh, social unrest in a society rather than just moving money from savers to debtors. What you just described there to me is like the perfect way to kind of move into kind of the last thing I want to talk about, and that is whether you can control it or not. I completely understand all the, the, the points you've made, and I think they're factually correct. And, you know, you've given me a lot more to think about uh, as a result of this conversation. My question is, do you think that as they roll out these macro prudential policies, I mean, to my mind, they're also, you know, going to be creating a lot of moral hazard. You know, you're, the banks will be giving loans to people or companies or corporations that should probably not be in business. So, you know, you are increasing the money supply and you're doing it in a way that doesn't initially increase government debt. And so now you've got more money without more debt, well, without at least more government debt. So the, 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 the debt to GDP becomes more favorable up and until those loans fail. And then the government has to come in and back the banks because they guaranteed them. And then the governments would have to print money or, or issue new bonds in order to, to back the banks. And if that happens in smaller countries, where perhaps there's more unfavorable businesses getting loans than in the bigger ones, I could see a situation where those currencies start to fall precipitously compared to the major currencies or or some of the currencies that aren't as far down that path. Mm. And so I guess my point to you, here's the question is, I can see this leading to hyperinflation in some places because there's no demand for their currencies outside of their own countries. But I, I have a very hard time seeing this leading to hyperinflation in the United States because of the high demand for the dollar. Now, people always tell me, no, Brent, it can happen in the U.S. as well. And it can. I just think it's very unlikely that we have these extremely high levels of inflation in the United States before we have extremely high levels of inflation in some of these smaller countries who don't have as much demand for their currencies. Am I thinking about this wrong? Am I missing a step in here? So I would tend to agree with that, but maybe it's because we define hyper, I mean, hyperinflation defined by academics is 60% a month. So let's get away from, so America's not going to have that full stop. Let's just bring it back to something more reasonable. Will inflation in this cycle go above its peak of the 1970s? I think that's a reasonable way to look at this, which I think was 14%. Uh, The answer is it might in America. but there are some places where it will go higher. The interesting thing is that emerging markets have got really good balance sheets. So it's really about is there is their structure of constitution strong enough to stop a government pursuing this? It's really about your institutions now and your views on property ownership and all of that stuff. And of course, that's the problem in the history of some of the smaller countries, not all of them. But the history of that constitution is that it has allowed politicians to do these things. And to get away with them. So we obviously think of Venezuela today. Sure. Uh, I know that lots of people have questions about uh, President Trump's ability to override the Constitution. But ultimately, if anything, 
uh, the last four years is to show that the president is constrained in, in the policies. So there are constraints on the American political class, I would say, that don't exist anywhere else. And actually, if you look at the, if you read Carmen Reinhardt and, uh, and um, uh, Kenneth Rogoff's uh, This Time It's Different, they point out that there are, I think there are seven countries that will always hyperinflate because they always have. And the fascinating thing about that is it's because of weak institutions. It's really nothing more than weak institutions that a strong man, I think with one obvious exception in Argentina, it's usually been a strong man, has overridden those things. So I don't think America gets to that stage. And if it is going to get to that stage, it's a very long way from it. All I would say is this, the, the crucial magic sauce in inflation, which nobody can control, is the velocity of money. And that is when you and I, if you and I ever come to a conclusion, I'm sitting at this very nice desk. If you and I ever come to the conclusion that this desk is a better store of value than money, you know, significantly better store of value than money, then we have got a problem because suddenly those monetary balances, which we we held as savers, suddenly go into what we would call uh, consumption and, and transaction. Now, to me, it's really highly likely that at some stage in this process, velocity just spikes and it could be many, many years away, but it doesn't take you to hyperinflation. It maybe takes you back towards the levels associated with the 1970s, but I don't think it takes you to to hyperinflation. Okay. So I've got one final question for you. And I'm I'm really curious your thoughts on this because when I first saw it again, four or five years ago, I thought it was the most ridiculous thing I'd ever seen in my life. And I just could not figure out what in the hell they were doing. But the longer I've looked at it, the more I've come around to maybe they're just really smart. <laughs> um, and that's the Swiss National Bank. So for many years now, they've been printing the Swiss franc in order to keep it from appreciating too wildly. And then they take those Swiss francs, they buy U.S. dollars, and then they go out and they buy U.S. stocks. Again, I initially thought this is this is the height of, you know, the opposite of macro prudential. This is the opposite of, 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 you know, strong monetary policy or smart monetary policy. But as I, as I've seen the progression and I see the, you know, these potential cap rates in other parts of the world, and maybe they hit the U S but they hit the U S last. And when I see that, you know, Switzerland's in a better relative shape than all these other countries, and they've also got to keep their currency from getting too strong. It actually might be a genius move. I haven't decided yet, but I'm just curious. Do you, do you have any thoughts on what they're doing? Yeah, for sure. So they, they had to stop the currency going up. So that's the first thing. So, you know, you might say, well, they don't have to. They could have just let the economy adjust. But yeah. They decided not to. And the adjustment in the economy could have been gross, given how uncompetitive the exchange rate would be. So, so that's the first decision. And once you take that decision, which I think socially and politically they had to make, the only interesting question after that is, what are you going to do with all the money? So, so that's the interesting bit. The first bit, I think, was you know pretty predictable, socially and yeah. political. To focus on stocks is not actually that different. I mean, if you think about a country like China, for instance, and we all focus on its great flow into U.S. treasuries, well, it also set up sovereign wealth funds. Uh, and a proportion of the money also goes into equities. And some of it's not just even in listed equities. It's in private equity, et cetera, et cetera. So the argument has always been once your pile of bonds government bonds gets to this level, which is the great liquid asset that you might need one day to defend the exchange rate, you can slew off the other bit into less liquid assets. So I don't think they've done anything, probably in terms of the proportions, it, it's a bit radical. But actually in terms of reserves management, which is really what we're talking about, it's not that radical. I mean, the, the, the level of bonds they already had was easy enough to back up the currency so let's put some more of it into assets. You know, it, it's happened. Look at Saudi, look at Norway, 
And these are countries with huge investments in equity all around the planet. I guess the difference in Switzerland is it all happened really, really quickly. And it didn't happen because they had oil that people wanted. And it didn't happen, which is Norway. It didn't happen as in China because they had lots of products that people wanted. Uh, bizarrely, it happened in Switzerland because it is a currency that everybody wanted. Uh, you know, the long-term solution to that problem is capital controls. Uh, now, they didn't do it. And, uh, you know, the only way they could have dealt with that problem is to try and make it more difficult for people to put money into the Swiss franc. And that would, be, would have been a capital control. And arguably, that's probably what they should have done. But they didn't put a capital control up. They accepted all that capital flowing in. They had to buy something. And if you're going to buy something, it's not actually that bizarre to have a proportion of it outside of the bond markets and, and, and yeah. inequities. But going forward, a country who faces that problem may want to go more towards a capital control because we'll live in a, a more normal world. And just fin finally, on those capital controls, the IMF now endorsed them anyway. So the whole intellectual framework of that particular policy, which was absolutely anathema to everybody, certainly 20 years ago, becoming less so, is, is moved on. So the next time we get a problem like that, it, capital controls may be the answer. Well, Russell, as I knew it would be, this has been a fantastic conversation. I really appreciate uh, I, I could probably talk to you for another two or three hours, but you'd probably want to cut your throat and the, the listeners would get sick of hearing me ask questions. So I think this is probably a great place to to wrap it up. But I, I really want to say thank you again. I've really enjoyed this. I hope the listeners enjoyed as much as I did. And uh, you're a gentleman and a scholar. Great. Well, that's, that's the nicest thing anyone said to me since COVID began. So thank you, Frank. <laughs> All right. Have a great day. Thanks, Brent. Cheers. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.